Welcome to The Road Untraveled. I'm your host, Brian Hollins, and today we have a very special guest in Miriam Mavera, co-founder and managing partner of Ula Ventures. Miriam has an incredible track record, not only as an investor, but also as an operator, having been the 160th employee at Google. She has raised over $250 million for low-income and undocumented undergraduate students and continues to fight for the importance of creating diverse teams across the tech ecosystem. Today, Miriam and I speak about some of the advice she's sharing with startup founders, the importance of investing in diverse teams, and some of the innovations that often arise in times of adversity like the ones we're facing today. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, re- really excited to dive in here. Uh, for anyone that's joining us, Miriam Rivera is co-founder and managing director of Ulu Ventures, a top seed stage venture fund in Silicon Valley focused predominantly on IT startups. Uh, prior to Ulu, Miriam was vice president, deputy general counsel at Google, which she joined in 2001 as the second attorney. Before Google, she worked for Ariba as counsel after having co-founded a venture-backed startup called Outcome Software. Uh, Miriam is the co-founder and former co-president of Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs and is a part of the prestigious Kauffman Fellows community in venture capital. Uh, Miriam, there are so many accolades that I'm skipping because I just can't wait to hear your insights. Uh, but I'll just quickly add that, you know, you do so much work trying to bring diversity into the tech and venture ecosystem. Uh, and I'm very grateful to have you sort of paving the way for, for people like myself as I continue in my career. So I, j- I just wanted to thank you up well, front for a lot of Thank you for work. having me, Brian. And I'm excited to be here. Amazing. Um, well, l- l- let's start there. You know, you, you talk a lot about this notion of diversity, uh, you know, really being a core investment thesis um, and, and the idea that diversity is profitable. Uh, you know, give people some context on, on the role of diversity within the Ulu portfolio. So one of the insights that I had while working at Google was that people really seem not to tune into the fact that the early team was one of the most diverse teams in tech and they Hmm. seem not to correlate that diversity with the success of the company, but seeing it from the inside, I realized that that was, you know, part of the secret sauce that made Google what it is, um, which is one of the fastest growing companies in American history. And the founding group of vice presidents was about 13 VPs and there was uh, at least two or three of them that were immigrants or children of immigrants. The first general counsel was African-American. The first CFO was Cuban-American. There were three women on the um, initial group of vice presidents. So Google was unusually diverse for a tech company in its early days. And I believe that that was part of what brought so many different kinds of life experiences, interdisciplinary skills from different um, aspects of business, law, marketing, technology, all those pieces um, coming together in the senior team kind of built a DNA that enabled the company to have um, those diverse perspectives when we were looking at different issues that impacted the company. And I saw that firsthand. Uh, One time I was in a meeting with a group of people and we were setting some new finance policy for the company. And I realized I was sitting in a room with no white men (laughs) and no white women. (laughs) You know, it was basically a, a few different immigrants 
yeah, it was a total melting, melting pot. pot. <laughs> you know, international uh, folks, myself as a Puerto Rican American, and that um, really showed me that wow, this is kind of a different company. <laughs> I've never been in this kind of a role mm-hmm. and had no white men in a room, but we were setting the policy for a fortune 500 company. And so my sense is that um, people, especially, you know, about, we started Ulu Ventures about uh, almost nearly 12 years ago now. And the thesis was venture capital is under investing in people of color. It's under investing in immigrants, like literally at, Google, we had some of our Indian engineers go back to India in order to get venture capital. They couldn't get it um, in Silicon Valley, even though they were down the street at one of the best companies in Silicon Valley. And so that insight led me to think, well, if other people aren't doing it, I'm going to do it because I want to bet on these kinds of people, the ones that I've worked with here that I know to be some of the hardest working, some of the most educated, um, and, you know, just people who have their hand on the pulse of where tech is going. And if other people are going to systematically overlook them, well, then I'm going to systematically look for these kind of people. And I'm going to make my (laughs) bet with those kinds of folks, because, you know, I believe that I'm one of them. You know, I was a first generation college kid. And by the time I was 40, I was a Fortune 500 VP at Google, where I had been, you know, pretty early, like I was uh, employee number 160. So helped to build the financial success of that company by working on the first $14 billion worth of revenue. Wow. That's incredible. Um, I, I want to stay there just just for one more, just because I think I think you have so so many insights on this topic in particular. You know, something that I've I've certainly thought about over over the past couple months is, uh, you know, access to capital. To your point, in an eleven year bull market, was difficult for minority founders, right? And so, as we head into, you know, what may be a little more of a constrained investing or funding environment over the next six to twelve months, you know, what is some of the advice that you're giving to, uh, you know, female or minority founders as as they start to think about having to go out into an investment ecosystem that it, that is going to be even even more strict. First, access to capital is an issue, especially at the earliest stages in a company. And I think that's something that Mm -hmm. we've seen in terms of one of the differences that we make at Ulu by being seed investors and why, you know, I particularly chose the seed area in terms of making investments, because it seemed to me that, you know, once a company is doing well and generating revenue and having success, it's actually not that hard to get venture capital, especially if you happen to be in some of the venture capital um, big cities in America. Um, I certainly think that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, But that first check is often really hard to get. And so one is, and I try to address entrepreneurs more generally. I know, you know, your audience may be more focused around venture capital, but venture capital is typically limited to the top 1% of companies in the U.S. And that's in part because the bet that a venture capitalist is making is that a company can achieve 
initially a billion dollar valuation and then secondarily actually generate a billion dollars worth of revenue someday. And most companies are not going to get there. So, you know, venture capital may not be the appropriate um, funding mechanism for your company in particular, if it doesn't have those kinds of aspirations and possibilities. So one of the things that I do um, really recommend is for people to try to understand what is the right form of capital um, that will help their business grow. And I think one of the things that makes it hardest for um, people of color in particular is um, that our communities have relatively low wealth. So if you look at the average wealth of a white family in America, it'd be $100,000. And if you look at the average wealth of a African-American family in America, it'd be about $10,000. So really significantly different um, starting points. And, you know, the idea of a family and friends round is probably much less available um, than if you were white in this yeah. country. And so, um, you know, certainly not necessarily friends, right? Because anybody can have um, uh, wealthier friends. And that's uh, one of the advantages, I do think, of um, going to places like Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School or um, these kinds of undergraduate institutions as well, is that you make networks and connections um, with people that have, you know, different uh, resources than you may have. And I certainly feel like that was um, what was of tremendous benefit to me going to Stanford undergrad was both having role models um, in those communities as well as having uh, people who were willing to make investments in uh, folks that were not like themselves, um, both philanthropically and then mm -hmm. through internships and jobs, et cetera. Um, and so that's pretty important. In yeah. terms of financing a small business, you know, some of the things that we're seeing in innovations, I also serve on the Kauffman Foundation board in Kansas City um, that's trying to increase uh, venture capital and other access to capital for entrepreneurs in the center of the country. And, you know, they're looking at things like revenue loans for companies that actually are generating revenue and um, can help finance themselves by paying back through future revenue streams. So, that's something that's becoming more common and we're seeing that. Impact capital is another uh, form of capital that's available and yeah. that, you know, there are great organizations um, that are in particular looking for uh, people of color. I serve on the Acumen Fund America Investment Committee as a volunteer and that group uh, places money with startups that are trying to impact um, the conditions of the poor in America through technology and half of their founders are people of color. So, you know, there are different um, impact groups throughout the country, excellent ones that are particularly looking yeah. to have a diverse portfolio. Um, also the new, um, the new regs under the jobs act that permit people to um, raise capital in public ways is another vehicle that we're seeing companies use um, where you can actually raise capital of, it could be from $1 to $4 million um, online 
uh, one of our companies, for example, called NowRx, is using SeedInvest, SeedVest, uh, sorry, a company that um, places these kinds of offerings yep. online. So you can go directly to the American public with your ideas and um, get funded that way. Crowdfunding is, this is a form of crowdfunding, and there are other forms of crowdfunding. For example, if you're developing a product uh, that isn't software, it more likely you have a good that you're trying to create. Um, a lot of folks are using crowdfunding platforms to do it. So trying to understand the spectrum of uh, capital that's out there and the right kind of capital for the kind of growth prospects that you have is really key in terms of accessing capital to grow a business. Yeah, that's a, it's really super tac tactical too. I, I appreciate you sharing that because I, I, I agree, I tend to agree with you. And I think a lot of people think, uh, you know, if it doesn't have an 85% gross margin and, and doesn't have sort of recurring SaaS uh, features that, that, that there's no way to raise capital. And there, there certainly are a variety of different angles and, and avenues through which you can, can approach. Uh, I want to I circle back to one of the things that you said a little bit earlier uh, around thinking about, you know, mentorship and advisors. You know, what, what do you think makes a good mentor through times like this? There's obviously a ton of uncertainty. And so, you know, without providing a crystal ball to a founder, what, what do you think are some of the most important things that, that you're doing for your portfolio companies or CEOs? I'll say that uh, one of my mentors uh, was a gentleman named Gabriel Sandoval. And he was a 30-something Stanford undergrad who had gone to Santa Clara Law and had become a he was the general counsel of an S&P 500 company in his 30s. And I remember reaching out to wow. him in those days by snail mail and saying, I wanted to just meet him. I had to try to understand the story of how he did this. That's amazing. And he, uh, he agreed. I you know, agreed to go out to lunch. I said I'd take him to lunch and I wasn't going <laughs> to ask him for anything except his story. And actually, at the end of that lunch, he both would not allow me to pay for lunch and he offered me a job <laughs> and I said, I told you I was going to ask you for a job. He said, well, you didn't ask I'm offering. And so I went to work for him because that's kind of that's what incredible. I thought would be the best way to learn from somebody who um, had the possibility to be both a role model and a mentor and a champion. And I think he was all of those um, in terms of our companies and some of the things that we're doing this is a particularly hard time to be a startup founder. And it's a really painful time because many of our companies are having to make yeah. some of the hardest decisions that you ever do as a manager and a leader of a company, which is what is essential to the survival of my company? Um, which roles are essential to that survival? And, they're having to make decisions about layoffs, um, furloughing staff, and some of them are in industries that are particularly hard hit. We have a number of education technology companies in our portfolio, and this is the first time in over 100 years that education is a sector um, that is really not in business, right? Not in a traditional way where you can access people yep. in an office and uh, sell uh, to them and help them understand your product. So a lot of them are both going through this real strange period where their services are really being underutilized, but 
come August, they'll have to step on a dime and start offering services, you know, extremely differently from what they're doing today. So trying to help them think through uh, how to potentially gain option value around people they really want to keep, how to, um, you know, make decisions about what they really need to do to try to become uh, more potentially profitable companies, right? And in the last 10 years, I'd say that people have gotten used to really thinking about their roles as CEOs as fundraising and valuation increasing, um, as opposed to building fundamental Mm -hmm. businesses. So we're starting to see people um, really change their focus in terms of, I know I need to survive at least, you know, 12 to 24 months, because this cycle um, could be a a longer one, uh, especially if, you know, come fall, uh, it turns out that COVID-19 is uh, seasonal. And so there is another wave uh, that hits our Mm -hmm. country. And so, you know, we may be back in uh, another holding pattern. And so they have to think about that. And they also have to think about, are there ways that I can change my business so that I am an attractive technology for people to be using during this uh, unusual pandemic uh, cycle And I think those are the kinds of practical questions that we ask. I think we also try to um, just be human about it. You know, we've actually gone through 2001, 2007, 2008, and now, um, you know, 2020. And there's been a major uh, downturn in the tech sector at each of those turns. And we've lived through them we help our founders understand that they're going to live through them, that they're going to, um, in many cases, this focusing of attention on survival, profitability, essentials, really gets people to uh, actually perform better. You know, adversity is sometimes the mother of invention. Yeah, that's great. Uh, let's spend a little bit of time just thinking about a, a few industries that you're, you know, either particularly excited about or particularly worried about as, as you think about, uh, you know, forecasting the, the potential impact of COVID. I, I certainly think there's, there's some on both sides. And so I'm curious if there's any yeah, particular I'm, that you I'm watching. somewhat concerned with alternative energy, sustainable energy companies um, at this point, in part because the price of oil often sets the competitor level, if you will, for what these kinds of companies mm-hmm. are competing against. So, you know, we have some companies that are doing electrical vehicle wireless charging technology, or um, we have an electric uh, bus company that's one of the leading companies in the United States uh, in that space. And, you know, a lot of their growth has been focused on it's the right thing to do from an environmental perspective. We all know that regardless of the price of oil or gas. Um, And it's typically that the lifetime value of some of these alternative technologies um, will more than pay for itself in a given cycle, but that's comparing against operating uh, oil and gas. So you have to um, have some level of concern for companies that are trying to increase the 
uh, utilization of alternative fuels um, and energy at this time. And I think that's something that um, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful people realize that the long term is still the long term, <laughs> you know, that the equation of fossil fuels yeah. um, and how much there is in the world really hasn't changed because of COVID-19, unless we decide we really all just like working at home and not going out and doing anything, which <laughs> I haven't decided for myself. Uh, and in general, you know, I think that this will be um, a slower business cycle um, for m many companies in tech, but that the long term is very solid. Like people ask me, questions like how has COVID-19 changed your strategy as a venture firm? And the reality is it hasn't because ventures, are, especially at the seed stages, yeah. 10 to 15 year cycle. Um, and I'm hoping that, you know, COVID is conquered, you know, in the next couple of years. And, you know, I'd be surprised if it extended beyond a four year period. So, you know, so for me, it doesn't yeah. really change my long-term perspective on, businesses that we want to invest in. Um, but it does have, um, it does create a concern for businesses that are building technologies that might not um, get enough funding in the next couple of years in order to, to really play out their hand. And, you know, education technologies would yeah. be another one where, you know, I think we have some really excellent technologies that are much better than the kind of technologies most schools are using right now um, to uh, provide education online to students. Uh, and they have a much more interactive format. Um, they have uh, much more flexible approaches mm -hmm. to learning. But will those companies be able to get funded when people think in you know, a, a very short run cycle? Yeah. That's great. Uh, one more for you, Miriam. This is this has been super fun, and I, I really appreciate a lot a lot of your thoughts here. Uh, you've you've spent a lot of time around universities, and so the last one I kind of want to end on is you know if you think about students and and the sort of entrepreneurial nature of of being a student, um, you know what what do you think is your is your message to to your students that are certainly probably pretty nervous about uh, you know, taking that entrepreneurial leap right now and, and not just taking the consulting or banking job, you know, is, is now, is now still a good time to build a company and, and what's some of your advice for people that are having to build in such an unprecedented time? I actually do have a college age daughter. Um, she's a student at Duke and I also mentor a number of younger people, uh, at Stanford, uh, near where I work. And so, uh, I've actually had this conversation with real people, um, one of whom is a Stanford <laughs> MBA, for example, um, and has been very active in social entrepreneurship, uh, an African-American young man. Um, and, you know, he he was wondering, do I just stay in school? I've got this really amazing idea that I want to pursue. Um, it has, you know, I think it would get some lift in this uh, COVID-19 environment. Um, or do I, you know, stay and do these online classes um, where I'm actually not getting part of the benefit of, of the network that I was trying to build as yeah. an African-American in business um, through the Stanford Business School? And, you know, I really said, like, 
to me, this is an awesome time for a person, a young person to take risks and to um, pursue a startup idea uh, because your degree, you can come back, finish your degree um, when it's in person. You know, if you have the if you have the wherewithal um, to sustain yourself while you're looking to uh, create a company while you're building a proof of concept and, you know, you're able to generate um, some traction pretty organically, uh, then, you know, you can look for funding at that time and, you know, but make a go of it and, and see what happens. And, you know, I think his sense of, yeah, you know, the good thing is, you know, a degree from a place like that is going to be valuable no matter when you get it. <laughs> um, and it's frankly potentially more yeah. valuable in an up cycle than it is in a down cycle. Um, and so if you're able to do something uh, during a down cycle that is, you know, a one of a kind event in your life starting a company is at most a a handful of times in your life right it's kind of like having children I say and you know it's a it's can be a wonderful time to do it because oftentimes there's talent available that was never going to be available to you before right and that is typically one of the most important things you can do we were building google during the 2001 bust it was an awesome time um, to be hiring people we just had some of the best people you could imagine um, able to join our company because guess what? There wasn't a lot of competition and not a lot of competition at our caliber. So, yeah. um, and then even with my own daughter, uh, she had been doing uh, a gap year and this was way before COVID actually became what it is. We said she should travel around the world and, you know, she'd get her degree when she got her degree and um, having, uh, she had a remote internship um, in digital marketing uh, and, was helping to support herself during her travels this way. And, you know, she'd never probably have another year where she could travel the world, um, get work experience and um, be able to get that exposure culturally um, in different countries. And in one country for a longer period of time, she was in Australia for several months and interned there um, in addition to her uh, digital marketing internship. So, you know, when we say, yeah, take, take a little some bit of everything when you're young is the best time to do it. And yeah. in fact, you know, she's managed to outrun COVID-19 um, throughout the globe. At this point, uh, we had some exciting <laughs> moments with her being kicked out of Morocco and barely allowed into the Canary Islands when oh, they were doing goodness. a transatlantic crossing on a four man crew boat. Um, but it's been a life oh, experience goodness. that she'll never forget. <laughs> that's fantastic uh and such a such a good one to end on uh, i i uh, i too am you know stuck in an environment where uh i'm not getting to travel i'm not getting to do all the things that i that i came to hbs to do but uh i am certainly uh, counting my blessings and, and feel very fortunate to be healthy and that was what yep. was most and, important and i so. think that all of us who can and want to contribute to the entrepreneurial community can do it in different ways so um there's a lot of need out there. Um, I see people starting businesses online using, you know, a variety of online skills and their uh, world, physical world skills. So, you know, 
there's a lot of ingenuity that comes up when uh, there is a down cycle. So that's one of the blessings of it. Absolutely. Uh, Miriam Rivera, co-founder and managing director of Ulu Ventures. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you today, Brian. Thanks.